Thank you, team. You guys can go ahead and be seated. And as you are, I want to welcome you here this morning to Crossroads. Uh, So glad that you're here, whether you're joining us online or here in-house. Man, we come together and we are not afraid to celebrate, to lift the name of Jesus, to uh, talk about the hope that we have as being a part of uh, really the family of God. If you are new to Crossroads Church, I want to say welcome to you. My name is Matt Manning. If we haven't met yet, I get to be uh, the senior pastor here at Crossroads Church. And today, um, if you are new today, I want to kind of encourage you, if you have questions or uh, things that you just need to be a- need answered, uh, don't hesitate to ask. You can uh, find someone out in the lobby at the Welcome Center online. You can click the comment section and leave us a comment there. But don't be afraid to ask and to, and to search. We want to do everything that we can to help you connect here, to help you know that you uh, belong here at this church. And so uh, take that as like uh, your freedom to, to jump right into that. Um, with that said, uh, we are going to be in uh, Acts chapter 9 today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there as we continue our series that we're calling Acts Season 2. We are looking through this amazing book of Acts, really looking at how the gospel of Jesus moved from this small group of people, like 12 guys, to this worldwide movement. And we're doing it kind of like a TV show in seasons because Acts is so big and so long uh, that we've broken it down into seasons so that we can take it in chunks. And what we've seen in this season, this section, really over the first two weeks, is really the, like the awakening of the church. And what we've come to see is that the church is this countercultural movement. It's not a building like we think about it in modern terms, but rather it is a countercultural movement that creates a new kind of human being that has new values. The person has new identity. They, they are part of a new community. That this is the church really awakening. And as we've seen in this season so far, the movement begins really as Jesus said it would. That Jesus came and he told his disciples that this movement of the gospel, the movement, this, this church would begin in the city center of Jerusalem. And so in season one, we watched where largely the gospel was spreading like wildfire throughout the city of Jerusalem. And then persecution comes. And because of the persecution, we watch and we watch the church not like falter in the face of persecution, but rather it begins to flourish as people run from the city center into the regions of, of Samaria and into the regions of Judea. And what is so shocking as this movement begins is the people that are associated with it. Those who Luke, the author of Acts, who he chooses to highlight as who's joining this movement of the church. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just so surprising. The first story that we looked at a few weeks ago was with a guy named Simon. Simon has this encounter with this other guy named Philip, who's this missionary. He's this uh, courageous evangelist of the church. And Simon, we're told, is a magician, like he does tricks for a living. And he has this conversation with Philip, and Philip opens his eyes to who Jesus is and, and that he can put his trust in Jesus. And almost immediately we see Simon, that he doesn't get it all. Like his theology is kind of messed up. He believes that he can, he can purchase God and the power of God. And yet by the end of the story, we see that even though Simon has bad theology, that he is welcomed into the church with open arms. Then the second story that we looked at last week is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And if, if the first week's story was shocking, this story is scandalous because what we learn about the Ethiopian eunuch is that this is a man who for his entire life wrestled with the agonizing, agonizing gender issues. 
that his sexual identity had been robbed from him. For most of his life, he felt like an outsider looking on the end. And to compound all of that, if that wasn't all bad enough, that because of his, his gender uh, kind of, you know, gender uh, like unknownness, his, his, his gender like feeling like he didn't belong to either side gender, that he would have been disqualified from serving in the temple because of Jewish law, that he was considered because of his gender issues, ceremonial unclean, which means that he could not worship God. And yet by the end of our story last week, he too is welcomed into the church with open arms. And what we've seen over and over again is that as God is launching this countercultural movement, as God launches this movement that he has room for people who don't have it all yet figured out, who don't quite understand where it is they belong or, or know exactly everything that they need to know, that God has room for them in his family, in this movement, in the church. As we enter into today's story in Acts chapter 9, if the two, first two stories weren't shack, uh, shocking and scandalous enough, it's like Luke takes it to an unprecedented level by introducing us to a guy named Saul whose story with the church could only be rightly categorized as villainous. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1, it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what this church was called, this is what the, the movement of Christianity was called at this point in history, it was called the way, that if he found anybody belonging to the way, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as we jump into this story, if you're familiar with Saul's story, what I want you to do is to try to separate yourself from all of the things that uh, you know that's going to happen in the future. I want you to step back from your flannel graph Sunday school, right, and uh, just sit in the story right here. If you're unfamiliar with Saul, his story goes a little bit like this. We met him first in Acts season one. And the first time that we meet him, he's overseen like a mob boss, the killing of Stephen, one of the faithful followers of Jesus that Saul was ruthless. He was a Jewish religious leader with a passion to ravage the church. His job, his job was to hunt down Jesus' followers and to do whatever means necessary in order to destroy the church. That he is the villain of the early church, the center of persecution, literally with the blood of believers on his hand. When it comes to Saul, he was an evil, evil dude. When Jerusalem became so hot that to stay there for the believers meant that they would die, the church begins to spread from the city center of Jerusalem into the regions of Samaria, into Judea. And for Saul, he wasn't just content to sit back and let them run, you know, exiting the city. In fact, he goes to chase them down. Like a predator stalking his prey, he ran after them. And Saul was so uncompromising in his pursuit of Jesus' followers that he was willing, listen, to travel a five days journey, leaving the city of Jerusalem, leaving the country of Israel, entering into Lebanon to go to the city of Damascus in order to wreak havoc on the church. And when it comes to Saul, he wasn't just doing this because he was fanatical, although you could probably rightly label him and categorize him in that way. But see, what he was a part of was a group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were this very devout um, religious sect of Judaism. 
During this time, they had a lot of influence, both uh, religiously and politically. They were smart. They were wealthy. They were the, the elite of the Jewish society. And the thing that they valued more than anything, the Pharisees, the thing that they valued more than anything was the purity of Yahweh. That was that the people who came to Yahweh, that the people who worshiped Yahweh, that they would be worthy of God. That was their number one value. And so for them, what it looked like is that in order to please God, in order to put a smile on God's face, in order to one day be in the presence of God, to be with God in heaven, what that meant is that you had to follow meticulously a long list of religious rules and regulations. And so for them, the Mosaic law, that is what we call the 10 commandments found in Exodus, that that wasn't good enough to follow. And so what they began to do is is they began to take the, the priestly rules and regulations, those that were given by God specifically for the priests so that they could lead Israel in worship. They began to take all of those rules and regulations and apply them to everyday people in everyday life. And if that wasn't burdensome enough, they then, as time went on, began to make up their own rules so that you had no chance at actually breaking God's laws. This is what we call legalism. They had rules that were so specific that, that you would count the number of steps that you would take in a day or the number of words that you could write before you were considered in violation of resting on the Sabbath that you were working. Now, Saul, from a very young age had this passion and this fervor for the purity, to to maintain the purity when it came to Yahweh. And because of this passion, he enters into like Pharisee training camp and he's selected, he's selected to be a part of the community. Well, the Pharisees, when it comes to Jesus, they absolutely hated him. That the Pharisees and Jesus always had this very tense relationship. They hated him. And the reason that they hated him is because Jesus had zero interest in playing by their made up rules. He just refused to play their game. And so as Jesus and Jesus' followers began to teach about God, the Pharisees started losing their mind because in their mind, the way that Jesus lived out his life, the way that Jesus lived out his faith, the way that he saw the disciples living out their faith was a gross misrepresentation of how you were to be worthy to God. And they felt like, like they were misrepresenting God. And so this hatred from Jesus eventually for the Pharisees grew to the point where they are the ones behind pushing the crucifixion by Rome when it came to Jesus. And we see this hatred of all things Jesus in Saul's life, playing out in his life as he is willing to travel 150 miles north from Jerusalem to Damascus in order to hunt down the church. He has a letter in hand from Caiaphas, the chief priest, the one who oversaw the death of Jesus to do whatever he needs to do in order to put down the church. On his way, here's what happens. Verse three. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So Saul's on his way up to Damascus, letter in hand from Caiaphas, the chief priest, to put down the church. And as he's traveling up, this light shines so brightly, it disorientates him. He falls to the ground as he's trying to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, he sees this figure who's standing above him, who's standing over him, and he rightly concludes that this is God. 
He has this divine moment and he calls out, Lord, who are you? Who are you? And what we come to find out is that this is Jesus. This is the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus is there in all of his glory standing before Saul and he asks him this question. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, we would expect Jesus to say, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? I mean, that's what's going on here, isn't it? That Saul is the murderer, he's the villain, he's going down, he's persecuting and tormenting the followers. Saul, why are you persecuting my church? But that's not the question that Jesus asks. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And what we see is the intimate connection that Jesus shares with his church that when the church is struggling and hurting, so too is Jesus struggling and hurting. When the church is being tormented, persecuted, even murder, Jesus feels it, that the connection is deep to his church then as it is, as it is now. And at this point in Saul's mind, he has to be spinning, right? I mean, his mind has to be spinning, doesn't it? The God that he was seeking to so faithfully follow the God that he had so much passion and zeal for, the God that he was willing to viciously kill other people for, is the God that he now opposes? Is the God that, that he's persecuting? I mean, he's got to be thinking, how can, this, how can this be? Jesus doesn't actually give him a moment to, to figure that out. Jesus goes on, he gives him this command, verse 6, but he says to him, Rise and enter into the city, and you'll be told what to do there. And the men who were traveling, I love this, with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but they couldn't actually see anybody, verse 8. And Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So his buddies pick him up off the ground, they lead him to the city. And for three days, he sits in the darkness. He doesn't eat. He doesn't drink. He's just wrestling with the truth that he's encountered. The truth that the, mo the movement of the church, the, the way, was always and has always been rooted in, in Judaism. And that because of Jesus, it's now a, a messianic Jewish movement that is flowing out of the Mosaic law. And that Judaism and Christianity, they were never meant to be separated, but, but all of it was to flow into a point where we would see our need for a redeemer, a Messiah, a savior. And so for three days, Saul is left by God to, to wrestle with what's taken place, deconstructing the religion that he has so tightly held onto his entire life. Undoubtedly asking questions like, like what about all the sacrifices? What about all the animal sacrifices? And maybe thinking to himself, surely not, not all the animal sacrifices, not all the animal blood in all the world could cover the sins for all people. He's wrestling with questions like, like, is Jesus actually the son of God? Is he actually the one, like what he said, that he went to the cross and died for the atonement of all people's sins? Undoubtedly, he would have gone back to Genesis chapter 12 and thought about Abraham, right? The granddaddy of the Hebrew people. You know, the one that God promised that through his lineage would come someone who would bring blessing to all nations. And, and Saul has to be sitting here thinking like, like, is Jesus that blessing? And as he wrestled to see, I just wonder, I just wonder what was going through his minds. 
Because I know what goes through mine when I see my need so clearly. When I see my need, my first tendency, my first reaction is to work harder. It's to be better. Like, there's got to be something that I can do, something, you know, there's got to be more laws that I can follow. There's got to be something more than I can give. There's got to be something that I can pay, right? Like, God, how much do I owe you? What do I have to do for you? And yet that's not the way that it works. Because of our sin, because of our sin, we can never be good enough. We can never be worthy enough. It's why the whole Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments were given, that the Pharisees tried so hard to follow, that all the reason the Mosaic law was given is to show us that we didn't measure up, that we, in fact, needed a Savior in our lives. At some point in all of our lives, we have to realize that truth leads us, it leads us to the point of grace. See, religion says, oh man, I messed up. Dad's going to kill me. A relationship with Jesus says, I messed up. I got to go call my dad. That's grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you do not deserve. When I see my need... And my first tendency, my first reaction, my first response is to do more, to work harder, to try to earn it. I wonder, even as a pastor, how much I understand the grace that is being offered to me by God. You ever feel that? So I was sitting here, three days without sights, not eating, not drinking, thinking and pondering the truth that's been exposed to him. And in this moment, God is going to show him an act of grace. He's going to show him what grace is all about. And so God calls up this guy named Ananias and says to him, you're never going to believe who's showing up to church on Sunday. Verse, verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straits, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this guy. <laughs> how much evil he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from Caiaphas, the chief priest, to bind all who call upon your name. Like Ananias receives this vision from God, and in the middle of the vision he goes, um, God, <laughs> uh, I think like maybe you've missed out on some things. I'm not sure what the angels are doing, but, but very clearly they haven't like told you what's all going on down here. This is a little bit awkward, but... Saul came here to find people like me. Do, do you, God, do you know what you're asking of me? Do you know what's going on here? Like, do you understand what you're asking me to do? He has killed people. He has persecuted the church. He has thrown people into prison. He is the villain. He is evil. This isn't for him. He doesn't belong here. Now, 
Ananias, rightfully, is probably a bit scared. And it's not too far-fetched for us to imagine that Ananias probably knows someone, a family member, somebody in his church, who has experienced persecution, maybe even death, at the hands of this man. I mean, come on, if, if God asked you to go and be a part of the work that he's doing in someone's life who had killed your family, had killed one of your friends, to show that person grace, would you go? Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Ananias, God says, I just need you to go. And it's so interesting, isn't it? The lack of detail that God actually gives Ananias here. He says, look, I got big plans for Saul that he's gonna be the one who carries my gospel, my message to people all over the earth. He's even gonna speak before kings and, and he will know by the end of his life what it looks like to suffer for me. I mean, (laughs) what a calling. And as Ananias walks into the house, there had to be so many unknowns. I'm sure there was so much going through his mind, but he knows one thing and one thing only, that God has chosen this guy that God has chosen this guy to share his message to bring glory to him. And at this point in the story, we're reminded that God doesn't use perfect people. That there's only one perfect person who's ever lived on this earth, and from that point forward, God has chosen to use imperfect people. People with skeletons in their closet, people who have messed up, people who have regrets, people who have done horrendous things, but people who dared to trust in the name of Jesus, to be filled by this Holy Spirit, and to do what God asked them to do, verse 17. And so Ananias, he departed and he entered into the house, laying his hands on him. And he said, Brother Saul, what grace here. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. I mean, such grace here. I mean, again, for a moment, if you've grown up in church, just just remove yourself from everything that you know that's about to happen in Saul's life, and just for a moment, live here. That at any point during this story, Jesus could have just snapped his finger, and Saul would have been wiped off the face of the earth, and the great persecutor of the church would have been a footnote in our history. Ananias could have walked into the house, seen Saul blind and frail, unable to defend himself. And in that moment, Ananias could have done to Saul what Saul had done to so many of the believers. And he would have been celebrated. And yet grace intervenes. God goes, this guy, I've got big plans for him. Ananias, I need you to go. I need you to lay hands on him. And so Ananias humbly submits to what God is asking. And Saul experiences for the first time grace. And as he does, we're told that scales fall off of his eyes. 
that this is this metaphorical language here, that in Greek literature, scales were, were an understanding that signified healing. Like if you think of like a scab over a cut, and as that scab, you know, as your skin heals, and as the scales of that scab fall off, there's, there's new life underneath, that you've been healed from your wounds. That's what's going on here. That, that the, the picture that's being painted for us is that as Ananias lays his hands on Saul, that scales, like scales fall off of Saul's eyes, and God heals him, and he opens his eyes, and he's able to see not just physically, but for the first time in his life, he is able to see spiritually clear the truth of God's grace and the salvation that's being offered to him. And so what does he do? He trusts Jesus. And immediately, just like we saw last week with the Ethiopian eunuch, he jumps into the waters and he is baptized. And at this moment, what we see in Saul is that the villain of the church, I mean, come on, the great persecutor of the church is now welcomed into the church with open arms. Brother Saul, come on in. And again, we see how countercultural this movement of the church actually is. I mean, who does this? Who invites the one who's coming to kill you into fellowship with you? And almost immediately, we see Saul become this new person. As time goes on, he'll become known as the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary our faith has ever known, the writer of so much of our New Testaments. Years later, writing about his former life and how it changed as he began to walk with Jesus. In Philippians chapter three, he writes these words. Listen to the statements of identity that he once held onto. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have so much more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, that's like the who's who of tribes. A Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of a church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as complete loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered. There's the prophecy given to Ananias, Ananias coming true. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And yet I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Immediately, we, we see the identities that were so significant to Saul in his life. A Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, all of a sudden, those are counted as nothing but rubbish in the reality and the truth that he is now with Christ. That when it comes to his values, he's no longer beholden by the law of God, enslaved to the law, trying to live it as blamelessly and perfectly as he can. But he realizes now that he can never live perfectly, that he needs a savior. And his value has shifted from legalism to grace. You see a brand new community, no longer a part of the Pharisees, no longer a part of the religious elite, the wealthy, the who's who of Israel, but now a part of the church in which he had once persecuted. It's an inspirational story for each and every one of us. And as I close today, I don't want it just to remain inspirational, even though it is. But I want to take a few moments to show you how personal this is for you. See, the reason 
that God decided to save Saul the way that he did is because he had you in mind. That Saul's conversion experience, this grace that God showed him some 2,000 years ago was for your sake. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul's writing this letter to a young Timothy, and he writes these words to him. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, the persecutor of the church, the tormentor, the murderer of people, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, that is his long suffering, as an example to those, this is us, who were to believe in him for eternal life. What this verse means for us is that regardless of where you're at in your faith journey, whether you believe in Jesus for your eternal life or you have yet to believe upon Jesus for eternal life, that Paul's conversion was for your sake. That his life was to make Jesus' immense suffering, his immense patience real and vibrant in you. We look on Saul's first 30 years or so of life and it was one long, long trial of Jesus. Why do you persecute me? That his entire life up until that point had been one long abuse of God, one long mockery of the Jesus who loved him. This is why Paul says that his conversion is a brilliant demonstration of Jesus' patience, of his grace. That Saul was the guy that nobody expected to come to faith. His opposition was, was too great. He was too deep. He was too articulate. He was too learned. He was too deep. He was sold out. And I mean, come on. So much, so much of Saul's life would be threatened if he actually trusted Christianity the way the church as truth that everything that he had built his entire life upon would mean that that meant nothing. The first 30 years of his life would have been nothing if he accepted Christianity. And that's the point. That what God wants us to see in Paul's life is that even the most unlikeliest people can be saved. That what God wants us to see in Paul's life is even the most unlikeliest people can be saved. That God's grace, his mercy, his power is not just set up for those who, where Christianity looks easy because of a good family or a good church or, or you know, they got a, they got a clean moral sheets. The chief of sinners found Jesus. The villain of the church found grace. The murderer of the followers found truth. Which means that there's hope for you and there's hope for me. That regardless of how far you think you are away, God's grace can find you. 
No matter what your kids or your grandkids are going through and the heartache that it causes in your life, that God's grace can find them. He can find them in your neighbors and grace can find your coworkers. The picture of Paul's story is a picture of grace given to us. It's what God is offering to each and every one of us this morning. It was for our sake that Jesus did it the way he did it when it came to Saul. That no matter what skeletons, or let's just be real, what bodies you might have in your closets, the regrets, the things that you wish nobody would ever know about, the things that you try to hide in your life, that no matter what sins you have stacked up, that you are not too far away from God's grace. And the invitation to every single one of us is to bring all of that garbage and to set it at the foot of the cross and in doing so, as we ask for forgiveness, asking that Jesus become the savior of our lives, trusting our entire lives to him, that he is faithful and he is just to forgive those sins. And his grace covers us forever forever. The story of Paul is so that we do not lose hearts, so that we do not think that God does not actually have the power to save us, that somehow we are too far away. The story is given to us so that we don't just simply look upon God the Father as prone to anger, just snap of his finger, wiping people off the face of the earth so that we don't have to think that our our loved ones cannot be saved suddenly, unexpectedly, by the sovereign, overflowing grace of Jesus. Today, as I wrap this up, for some of you, for some of you, there's a response here. And maybe the way that you would say it is that you're, that you're near to trusting Jesus. You just, you just need a few questions answered, and for that, I'm just going to put our text line back up. Our number is 720-513-1933. And if today, if you want to respond to this message, if you realize that you are not too far away for God's grace, we would love to have a conversation with you. You can simply text the name of Jesus to the number on the screen. Will you pray with me? Father, the story of Saul is remarkable. I mean, never in a million years would we write this story. Never in a million years would, would we expect the murderer and the great persecutor of the faith to have an experience so significant that his entire life is turned upside down. And he becomes the greatest spokesman for you. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us that we would realize the intensely personal nature of this story. That you saved Paul some 2,000 years ago for our sake. That we would have confidence that we are not too far gone. That we would have confidence that, that your patience is exceedingly long. That we would have confidence that no matter what happens in this life, that we can bring it to you as our Lord and Savior. That when we mess up, we don't have to run and hide from you, Father, but we can come to you. God, may we realize and understand and experience that kind of grace 
in each and every one of our lives. Father, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We celebrate today the amazing grace of God by remembering what occurred for us on the cross. Before we break the bread and drink from the cup, I just want you to spend just 30 seconds just pondering the grace of God in your life. suffering of God, the patience that God shows for you demonstrated by the breaking of his body. Together we eat and we remember. The hope that every single one of us has that the amazing scandalous grace of God falls on us new every day. continue in worship for the next 20 minutes or so. If you need prayer, we'll have people to pray for you. You can go to the banner, have someone pray for you there online. You can just click the button. We'll pray for you. I'm going to invite everybody in house to stand as we sing about the grace of God given to us.